All right. Well, good morning. Good to see everyone today. Let's take our Bibles. We're going to start today in uh, one of the synoptic gospels, Luke chapter 12. So if you would turn there, we're going to begin there and then we'll get to our passage in John chapter 7. Uh, And for those of you who may be visiting today, we are working our way through the gospel of John. We just completed last week uh, the sixth chapter. We'll move into chapter 7 and we'll keep on marching forward as we work our way through this glorious gospel. I mean, this is uh, just absolutely amazing as we learn of who Jesus Christ is and the time that he spent on the earth and why he came. And so we're looking forward to moving into chapter 7 today, but we're going to start here in Luke chapter 12. Well, we just sang about the attributes of God You know, before we can properly worship God, we must first know who He is. And with that in mind, I've always been comforted by the truth that God is sovereign, which means that God superintends all things. Nothing happens outside of His control. He either prescribes or He permits all things that come to pass, but all things are done in His perfect timing. And I don't know about you, but that has always been a standard in my life. It's always been very comforting to me to rely upon that truth, that God is indeed sovereign. Psalm 103 and verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. If God is sovereign, and we believe that he is, and he, according to Romans 8, 28, is working all things together for our good and his glory, then why in the world are so many Christians always, always seemingly in knots, worrying about this and that and every other thing? And I could make a list a mile long of the things that people worry about. For some, it seems they're constantly in this state of worry. It consumes them. It's all-encompassing. They worry about little things. They worry about big things. They worry about the past, the present, the future. They even sometimes worry about why they worry so much. It's terrible. It's a terrible way to live. I want us to concentrate this morning as we begin today on the words of Jesus here in Luke chapter 12 beginning with verse 22, if you would follow along, and we'll read down through verse 32. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 12, and he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot even do a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the fields, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? You men of little faith, 
And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. When we think about it, worry is really nothing more than a lack of trust in God. If we really boil it down, that's what worry really is. It is a lack of trust in God who is sovereign. Instead of worrying, Scripture tells us that we are to trust in God. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so instead of worrying and being consumed with things that we cannot control, we are to trust in God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding, but acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. And so no matter the circumstance, the Lord wants us to trust him. We know that. We know this. We understand this. But sometimes it seems like it's difficult to do, and I am not quite sure why that is. I'm not quite sure why that is. As those who are called by God, to be his saints, who he has saved through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. He has done all these things for us. He's given us eternal life. He's given us abundant life. He's given us all these things. He's revealed himself in his word as to how uh, he has done these things and who he is, and yet we still have this problem of worry and anxiety. You remember the song that was real popular here a decade or so ago. I think Farrell Williams is the guy that sang it. You remember the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? I mean, I cannot tell you how much time that song has spent in my head over the years. Don't worry, be happy. And it's a catchy little ditty, and I sang it, and I sing it if it's in the car, usually if I'm by myself. But I'll sing that song, but it's terrible theology. Don't worry. Just be happy. (laughs) Don't worry about these things. Don't worry about this stuff. Just be happy. Well, that's the world's way of dealing with anxiety, but that's not God's way. God wants us to trust him because he is sovereign over all things. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, once said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. So it's such a great comfort to know that God is sovereignly in control of all things, which includes, by the way, every aspect of each of our lives and even the timing of our death, which is another thing that we often worry about. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and the judgment. Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 and 2 says there's an appointed time for everything and there's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth 
and a time to die. This doesn't mean that we should eat greasy hamburgers and french fries and chocolate cake and ice cream every night for dinner, or that we should throw caution to the wind and walk out in front of a moving bus because God is sovereign. No, God will hold us accountable for our decisions and our actions, but not only does he know it all, he ultimately controls it all. Think about it. God controls it all. It was R.C. Sproul who once said that there's not a random molecule in the universe. God is sovereign over it all. And we sang of it earlier. He controls it all. Psalm 115 and verse 3 sums it up perfectly. But our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. So as we come to our passage for this morning, we're going to find another reminder of God's sovereignty, that nothing will happen until it's appointed time. All things happen in God's timing, and God has an eternal decree that will perfectly come to pass. And so if you've been with us during our study, in John chapter 6, we were comforted by God's sovereign choosing and his sovereign grace. But here in John chapter 7, we're going to be comforted by God's sovereign decree. And so I want us to look here at verses 1 through 13 of John chapter 7, and then we'll get into the text this morning. John chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booze, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself wants to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he, meaning Jesus, also went up, not publicly, but as if, it, as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. And yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So I've broken this down really into four pieces here, four pieces to the puzzle, four pieces to this narrative. And so verses 1 and 2, we find that Jesus' timing is vital. Jesus' timing is vital. Look again at verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now the feast of the Jews... The Feast of Booze was near. So the Apostle John begins here by saying, after these things. So he's referring to all that transpired in chapter 6, which we, as we considered, all took place around the time of the Passover, which is celebrated each year in April. 
Chapter 7 opens around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze, which is celebrated in October. So this is important. There's a sizable gap of around six months between chapter 6 and chapter 7. And by the way, the Feast of Booths is a week-long celebration of God's deliverance of their ancestors from the hands of the Egyptians. And the reason why it's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is because for these seven days they would live in little booths or tents that they would construct out of tree branches, which is what their forefathers had to do after the Exodus. And so a lot has transpired between chapters 6 and 7. Six months of time has passed. And none of it is recorded here for us in the Gospel of John. But we do get a flavor as to what has transpired in the life of Jesus during that time span from the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. So what we find in those two Gospels is that Jesus remained in the Galilee area, traveling from top to bottom, visiting many cities, performing miracles and healings, casting out demons, even miraculously feeding another large crowd of 4,000 people. But most of those six months were spent investing in the lives of his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. Jesus was actively teaching and discipling these 12 men, all the while knowing that one of them, Judas, would ultimately betray him. Now, let me say a little bit about discipleship. We hear that term mentioned often in Christian circles. It's a biblical term. Discipleship, especially as it relates to the local church, is not necessarily a one-on-one program. It can be But discipleship is intended to be an intentional, natural process that should be occurring in the life of every believer because the local church is the chief discipler of the Christian. And this is why every Christian is to be actively involved in a local New Testament church to receive teaching and instruction in the Word of God. And that is why it is so vital for folks to be faithful in their gathering with the saints because that's how we grow. We grow by sitting under the steady drip, preaching and teaching, and by interacting with other believers who are striving to also grow in their faith. True discipleship occurs over our lifetime, not just through an eight-week program about doctrine. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's a good thing, but we're to be lifelong learners, and students, because remember, a disciple is a student or a, a learner. And God's way for us to be discipled, to grow in our faith, is through the avenue of the local church. And so, as we've said, there are two things that happen at conversion or at salvation. There is justification, which means that we are declared righteous. We're declared righteous by God on the basis of His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But we are also positionally sanctified at the moment of salvation, so we are both justified and we are sanctified, and yet there's an element of sanctification that continues on in the Christian life. So we're positionally set apart unto God, which is what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart for holiness, to be set apart unto God. 
So we're justified and sanctified, but there is growth in the Christian life. And this is what most of the New Testament epistles are talking about as it relates to the church and why the church exists and why believers are to be a part of a local church, because we are to continue to learn more of the glories of Jesus Christ so that we may live them out in our lives and affect other people's lives and to be in other people's lives and to tell them about Jesus. So this growth process takes some time. It takes some time. And so this is what has happened between chapters 6 and 7 here in the Gospel of John, is that Jesus is investing his life into these 12 apostles. Because, as we know, the apostles would then eventually lay the foundation for the church, right? So Jesus is pouring himself into these men. And yet, as we learned last week, one of them will defect. One of them will turn on him and betray him. One of them, Judas, will sell him to those who would put him to death. So discipleship occurs over our lifetime. It's a growth process. And no one ever arrives. No one ever arrives. Think of the person that you think is the most knowledgeable, the most godly person that you can possibly think of in your mind. That person hasn't even been close to arriving. That person deals with sin just like all of us deal with sin. They're still growing. They're still learning. It's impossible to exhaust all of God's Word. We're constantly growing, constantly learning. And so Jesus is pouring Himself into the lives of his 12 apostles who would eventually lay the foundation for the church. And it was during this six-month period of time that Jesus tells them of his impending death and resurrection. Matthew 16 and verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and to be killed and to be raised up on the third day. Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be handed over to men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. But the time for all of that has not yet come. And again, this points us to the sovereignty of God and His eternal decree This plays a huge part in Jesus' decision-making that we find here in chapter 7. And so Jesus now had people who were actively seeking to kill him because they believed he was a blasphemer who said that he came from heaven to offer eternal life. Which brings us to the second piece of this narrative. Jesus' brothers are vehement. Jesus' brothers are vehement. Are vehement. Verse 3, therefore his brother said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now we know that Jesus had at least four half-brothers right? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, which we know by the name of Jude. And both James and Jude would eventually write New Testament epistles that bear their names. 
And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, was not a perpetual virgin, as the Catholic Church teaches. She was a virgin when she had Jesus, but both her and Joseph married, and they had numerous children. So Jesus had at least four half-brothers and numerous half-sisters as well. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus' brothers vehemently urged Jesus to go down into Judea, which is south of the Galilean region. So again, geographically, the Sea of Galilee is at the northern part of Israel. Israel is long and narrow uh, in scope. At the top of it is the Sea of Galilee region. This is where Jesus is ministering. This is where he anchored. This is where he's working. Okay, Down in the middle of Israel is Judea, the southern kingdom, or the southern part of Israel. Jerusalem is pretty much smack dab in the middle of Israel. Below Israel, there's a lot of desert down towards the, sea, or the Dead Sea. And then below the Dead Sea, it's just all desert and almost uninhabitable. So it's a thriving area up around the Sea of Galilee. His brothers had gone down to Jerusalem, which was the anchor of Judea, and where they would participate in this, in this feast, the Feast of Booze. But their reasoning to Jesus was, look, you, you ought to go because you'd have a larger audience who could witness your works. And so the rationale was, for no one does anything in secret when he's striving to be known publicly. You ought to just show yourself to the world, they said. But verse 5 is very telling, isn't it? It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So at this point in time, They had witnessed his miracles. They had followed him around. But even they had not yet believed in who Jesus really is. And this is astounding to us. They'd grown up with Jesus. They lived in the same house with Jesus. They would go outside and do things with Jesus when he was a young boy. And they watched him grow up. They never once ever witnessed Jesus' sin. Think about this. Can you imagine living in the same house with Jesus? All this stuff happens in the house. Mary and Joseph call all of the brothers and sisters together. Okay, who did it? Well, they know Jesus didn't do it, right? They know that. (laughs) Eliminate him. He didn't do it. Now, which one of the rest of you people did it? I mean, they lived with Jesus in the same home. They, they, They grew up with him. They knew him for intimately for some 30 years before his public ministry. And they still have not yet believed. They're just like the other fake disciples. Spiritually blind. God had not yet drawn them to himself. But the difference is they hadn't deserted him. They were still by his side. And this brings us to the third piece to this puzzle, which is number three, Jesus' words 
are valid. Jesus' words are valid. Look at verse 6. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So first, in verses 1 and 2, we saw Jesus' timing is vital. Second, in verses 3 through 5, we just saw that Jesus' brothers are vehement. And now third, here in verses 6 through 9, Jesus' words are valid. Here in verse 6, we find the key to this whole encounter with his brothers. Jesus says to them, my time is not yet here. My time is not yet here, but your time is always ready. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, this is something similar that he said. Remember when back in chapter 2, when Jesus was at the wedding of Cana, he said something very similar to his mother. He says, my hour has not yet come. And so in both of these instances, first with his mom in, in uh, Cana at that wedding, and now here with his brothers, this helps to crystallize for us that Jesus was not operating on his own timing, but the timing of the Father. And this is further validation of what Jesus said back in John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So doing the Father's will, which was Jesus' mission, would include following the Father's exact timeline. I'm, I'm uh, somewhat of a regimented person. I generally do the same things uh, every day. I have like a schedule throughout the week so that I make sure that everything I need to do uh, gets done. And so I work on my own timeline. I have a paper calendar. Some of you will scoff at that. But I have a paper calendar that sits next to my computer in my office. And it's got everything written down there that I need to do. I have a list next to my computer. And I mark things off my list as I go through my week. And so I pretty much work on my timeline. But then I'll get a call. And today, maybe I was hoping to put four or five hours in on my message for Sunday but I'll get a call from someone who needs my help or they need to meet with me or they need to talk with me about something going on in their life. And so I will drop what I'm doing and I will go to them and I will meet with them and I will talk with them and I'll do whatever it takes and spend as much time as necessary with them to help them with whatever they need. And so I kind of look at this a little bit from my own perspective where I have my own timeline. God has his own timeline I didn't know that this person was going to call. I didn't know that they were going to have an issue in their life that needed uh, counsel or help or whatever it may be. This is a reminder that Jesus came to do the will of the Father, not to follow his own timeline, but to follow the timeline of the Father who has an eternal sovereign decree that has been laid out prior to the foundation of the world. Jesus says his time has not yet come. And then he says to them, your time is always ready. 
So what does he mean by that? Well, he means that they have no concern for the Father's timeline. They're on their own timeline. Unbelievers are on their own timeline. But Jesus is not. And then Jesus goes on to say, the world cannot hate you because you're one of them. But they hate me because I call out their evil deeds. And this made me pause this week, really, in a big way, and stop and consider more deeply a couple of things. First, just how evil the world is that we live in. I know people don't like to use the word evil, but I don't know how else to describe it. Jesus described the world that he lived in as evil, and things continue to get worse and worse. And then second, I began to think about the limited persecution that we experience compared to Jesus. Sometimes we like to overblow the pressures of being a Christian and the selective disdain that we experience. Sure, it seems that things continue to get worse and worse, and like you, I'm concerned about that. But big picture, we still have the freedoms to proclaim the name of Christ without serious consequences. Sure, folks will lie about us, try and impugn our character. But when folks do that, it's, it's a reassurance that we actually stand for something. Something outside of ourselves. John Bunyan, the famous Christian author, once said this. He said, Therefore I bind these lies and slanderous accusations to my person as an ornament. It belongs to my Christian profession to be vilified, slandered, reproached, and reviled. And since all this is nothing but that, as God and my conscience testify, I rejoice in being reproached for Christ's sake. So, like John Bunyan, if it comes our way, if we experience persecution in this life, or even hate, we should actually rejoice. We should actually rejoice when we're reproached for the sake of Christ. It's actually a sign that we are shining the light of Christ and not hiding our light under a bushel. But let's be clear. The only reason the world would hate us is if we identified with Christ and lived like Christ, because the world does hate him. So the more we are like Jesus, the more the world will hate us. That's what Scripture says. The more we are like Him, the more the world will treat us the way that He was treated. And yet, we love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. We want to follow Him. We want to serve Him. We want to love Him because He died in our place. You see, all this other stuff doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter, honestly. I think when people get really old and they're facing uh, death right in the face, I think they look back on their life and they look at all the time they spent doing all these things that don't matter. In the end, they just don't matter. 
Now, we're to do everything for the glory of God, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do it all to the glory of God. And so whatever we do, we're to do it for his honor and his glory, yes. And God doesn't want us in a cave somewhere, and he doesn't want us, um, you know... (laughs) Uh, you know what asceticism is, and, and all these kinds of things that some of the old monks used to practice. He, doesn't, he, does, he wants us to be with people, and he wants us to enjoy the Christian life. So it's okay to go to a ball game. It's okay to go out and play Frisbee in the backyard. It's okay to enjoy yourself. It's okay to have people over to your home and, and have whatever to eat. It's okay. That's part of fellowship. That's part of growth. That's part of us being involved in the lives of one another. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking really big picture here. Big picture. I mean, I'm not, I don't think, knocking on death's doorstep, but I have thought back in my own life at all of the time that I've spent on all these things, and I'm thinking, what value was it? What was the value in it? I mean, spiritually speaking, what was the value in all that? And so these are things that we should constantly be talking about and thinking about and and all of this. But the only reason the world would hate us is if we lived like Christ. And that's sobering. That's sobering. So Jesus tells his brothers to go on to the festival without him because he's waiting for the right time. And so... Jesus initially, it says here, stays back in Galilee, and his brothers journey to Judea ahead of him. Which brings us to the fourth piece of this narrative, or this puzzle, and it is found here in verses 10 through 13, Jesus' doubters are vexed. Jesus' doubters are vexed. Look at verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret, so the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling about among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. And others were saying, no, <laughs> on the contrary, he leads the people astray. And yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So Jesus initially lays back in Galilee, but after the dust clears a little bit, he, he makes his way down to the feast. But, but he doesn't arrive with any pomp and circumstance. He travels down to Jerusalem and he enters the city secretly. His brothers had wanted him to go to Judea and make a big splash, show the masses what he could do. But instead, Jesus decides to go down to Judea by himself with no fanfare because the time was not right for him to publicly declare who he was. So since most of the people would have already made the journey to Judea for the feast, Jesus could essentially travel down the roads that were probably desolate, enter the city secretly, and avoid any direct confrontation with the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him. But notice that the people were looking for him. Everyone knew about him by now. Everyone knew about Jesus. There was no social media. There was no whatever, Facebook, Twitter, X, uh, TikTok, Instagram, whatever it is that, you know. There was none of that. There were no telephones. But the word had spread about Jesus. Jesus. 
And so they all knew about him. They all heard about the miracles. I mean, when you feed 5,000 people and those people tell people and those people tell people, the word gets around. And then when you do it again and you feed 4,000 more people and they tell people and they tell, the word gets around. Everyone knew about Jesus and they were beginning to formulate an opinion about him. Some of them said, he's a good man. All these things he's been doing, he's a good man. And yet others said, no, no, he's a, he's a blasphemer. He's a, he's a deceiver. But what we don't want to miss here is both of these groups were wrong. They're, wrong. they're both wrong about who Jesus really was. Jesus was not just a good man. He was the sinless son of God the Messiah, the holy God of the universe, God in the flesh. But if the truth be known, the tide was turning against Jesus. Fewer and fewer people would be counted among those who viewed him favorably. And most were in the camp of, he's a deceiver. He's not who he says he is. But everyone was keeping their thoughts to themselves or in a small cluster or in a small circle, perhaps waiting for some sort of direction or formal judgment from the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. Perhaps they could help us to unravel who Jesus really is. Most of us have heard what is called the trilemma of Jesus. It was C.S. Lewis who popularized the argument that Jesus was either a lunatic, liar, or Lord. But the trilemma wasn't original to him. And so after doing some digging, it was actually a Scottish preacher named John Duncan who lived from 1796 to 1870 who formulated what he called a trilemma. Duncan postulated that Jesus was either a conscious fraud or two, a self-deluded deceiver or three, he was divine. And in his mind, there's no getting out of this trilemma. Jesus is one of these three possibilities. In 1936, Watchman Nee made a similar argument in his book, Normal Christian Faith, and he said, a person who claims to be God must belong to one of three categories. First, if he claims to be God and yet in fact is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, he has to be a liar, deceiving others by his lie. Or third, if he is neither of these, he must be God. You can only choose one of these three possibilities, Nee said. If you do not believe that he is God, you have to consider him a madman. If you cannot take him for either of the two, you have to take him for a liar. There is no need for us to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is God. All we have to do is find out if he is a lunatic or a liar. And if he is neither, he must be the Son of God. This is what I shared with these two young gals who came into our house, Mormon girls that were on their mission that came in and sat and I talked to them I did most of the talking by the way for about 30 minutes 
or so. They were talking about they were talking about Jesus. In fact, they said that we don't like the term Mormon anymore. We like the term Latter-day Saints. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so I began to talk with them about Jesus. I said, you know what? It's really interesting because I'm preaching through the Gospel of John. You know what the Gospel of John's all about? It's all about the deity of Christ. Like from start to finish, that's exactly what is being said, that Jesus is God. You cannot say you believe in Jesus if you don't know who he is. And so I began to share with them all these things that we've been studying as it relates to to Jesus. And I'm going through step by step by step by step. First, trying to get them to understand that they have been lied to about who Jesus is. Even to the point where the Bible was changed so that it would promote their narrative that Jesus isn't God. He's created. He's one of the created. You see, when we're talking to someone about salvation and we're talking someone to someone about the grace that God bestows upon those who believe in Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone, we have to start, number one, with who God is. He is holy. He is holy. He is righteous. He cannot look upon sin. The wages of sin is death. So we must establish who God is and why we have this divide between us and God. It's because of our sin. And then we must get to who Jesus is. That God so loved the world that He sent Jesus Christ from the glories of heaven to to come and to die in the place of sinners, to take their punishment upon Himself so that by faith we can have eternal life. And this is what He was talking about when He said that He is the living bread who has come down out of heaven to offer eternal life to all who would believe in Him. So we must be clear with people as to who Jesus is. I think sometimes in our eagerness, we we like to try to jump ahead to try to get people to acknowledge that they want this salvation. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Sure, people would stand in line all day long if they were offered not to go to hell. But we must start with who God is. We must start with who Jesus is as we begin our gospel presentations. But as I said, it was C.S. Lewis who popularized this trilemma in his book, Mere Christianity, which was published in 1952. I have this in my library. Many of you may have it as well. Here's what he said. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was either a lunatic, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, how strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So where do you land? Where do you land? Do you believe that Jesus was just a great moral teacher? Do you believe that he came to the earth and he just lied to people about who he was? And if he did, wouldn't he be some sort of a lunatic? Because he believed it. And he said it repeatedly. Or is Jesus who he said he was and is? Lord. Lord, remember in the account when we finished John chapter 6 where Peter says, Lord, Master, Kyrios in the Greek, Lord, you are the Holy One of God. If you need Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that's why we're here. If you've come today and you're confused about this salvation that the Lord offers through Christ. You're confused about any number of things, perhaps. Please seek us out. We'd love to help you to know for sure that you are indeed a child of God. And we'd love to share with you about God's grace and the faith that is necessary to believe. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning... We've looked into your word, we've considered it, we have been challenged by it, we have absorbed it, we are now at a crossroads as to what we're going to do with it. And Lord, we are so grateful for the revelation of Jesus through this gospel account of John. And Lord, as he continues to, uh, as, we, as we continue to learn of his travels and all the things that he endured for us. May we never forget that Jesus didn't come for Himself. He came because You sent Him for us. And may we live our lives in accordance with that as one big thank You for what You've done for us through Christ. And now as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, we pray that it would mean even more to us today as we contemplate what Jesus has done for us. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.